As you know, uh, beloved listeners, I am an inveterate collector. I collect almost everything except stamps. I collect books, of course, old copies of the New York Review, and uh, antiquities, what uh, Barry Humphreys cruelly described once as my collection of broken rubble. But we also like to collect interesting guests, and uh, tonight that will be very much in evidence because I'm pleased to bring you a collection gathered by our special correspondent for oddities, Edward Brooke Hitching. Edward is renowned for his books about eccentricities, including the Madman's Gallery, which uh, we spoke to him about last time he was on the Little Wireless program. His new collection will warm your heart. Tonight, I think we'll uh, change the name of the program to Late Night Love because Edward is going to share just some of his collection of tokens of love that have been shared across across the ages. And he's documented them in his latest book, Love, A Curious History in 50 Objects, and it's published by Simon & Schuster. Welcome back to uh, Late Night Love, Edward. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you've become a, uh, well, a dab hand at producing compendiums of curiosities. Your latest has yeah. been described as a, a glorious cornucopia of a book. Where does this uh, desire to collect the world's odysseys come from? I, I think, I mean, I grew up in a rare book shop. My dad was a rare book dealer. And, uh, you know, when you don't have the expertise yourself and you, you want to be interested in something, it's usually the strange stories, the, the weird looking objects that grab you, you know, monsters drawn on maps. Um, and uh, after a while, I sort of would learn more about those. Um, and it's very exciting. The best kind of book you can read, nonfiction reference works are the ones that make you sort of laugh out loud and have to check that what you're reading is true and isn't a hoax. And it gets quite addictive. Um, and I wanted to sort of replicate the feeling you get when you flick through, as I'm sure you know from your collecting, the, the experience of reading auction catalogues and, and this sort of wealth of bizarre things to, to just drink in. Talking of uh, auctions, I understand that your father used you as a, uh, a bidder's paddle at uh, rare book <laughs> auctions. Yeah, I think I was put to work pretty early as an infant. Um, but uh, it, it's it's a magical world, and I think not a lot of people have uh, that sort of lucky experience of going to them that young. And you can feel like it's a locked-off world, that it's something very hard to get into, the sort of private antiquities uh, market and things like that. You can walk into a rare book shop, see a wall of dark leather spines with uh, Latin titles and think, where do you start? So um, the point of these books is to give you that start as sort of diving boards into this sort of pool of amazing information and, and follow your own interests, discover what you're interested in. I've long known you as, a, as an eccentric, but I didn't put you down as a hopeless romantic, Edward. How did you come up with the idea of tracking down the world's oldest recorded kiss, for example? Yeah, well, I thought that would be a good way to begin. And I wanted something new. I didn't want, uh, normally in this situation, um, we look at the sort of plaques of ancient Sumeria as the earliest depictions of um, sort of erotic poses and loving poses. Um, but when I went looking, I came across this paper by an anthropologist called Laura Weyrich, 
which was published in 2017. And she studies uh, the sort of dental bacteria of um, Neanderthals and early humans. And she made a startling discovery um, on the last remains, the, the very last Neanderthals discovered together in a cave, where she recognized this bacteria on their teeth as being one that's found on human teeth. So she was she managed to calculate that the transfer of this bacteria from Neanderthals to human mouths occurred about 120,000 years ago. And her conclusion was, this being a time of interbreeding between the species, that this was a time of uh, Neanderthal-human makeout sessions, and that she'd found scientific evidence of it, which is quite an image, and then we sort of hastily move on from it. Some of the most poignant images in your book are those of couples locked in embraces on tombs. Now, as it happens, I have got quite a few Etruscan terracotta tombs depicting the husband embracing the wife on the sarcophagus Mm. lid. Talk to me about the Etruscans. Well, the Etruscans are quite unusual uh, in the sense we're talking around 350 BC. This was the culture that was succeeded by the Romans in the northern Italian area. And they're quite unusual in this period for depicting not only burying husbands and wives together in the same grave or the same tomb, but also depicting them together in one sarcophagus. And a couple of my favorites are in the book because they are just instantly profoundly moving. Um, and so there's the sarcophagus lid of Thanchville Tarni and Love Tetnus, his wife. And they are uh, lying on their side in bed under a sheet, um, holding each other very intimately. Her hand is around the back of his neck. His hand is around her shoulder, her bare shoulder blade. And they're staring into each other um, on this lid of the sarcophagus for all eternity. And I think what's also quite striking is the shape that their outlines form is very clearly a human heart. And this is um, many years before this association with love in the heart is made. Um, but clearly there is an awareness of how important the heart is. And this is how they were. They wanted to be perceived for all alternatively, that love was the most important characteristic that they shared. We see an echo of this, of course, in uh, the famous carved tombs in uh, English cathedrals, don't we? Yes, exactly. Um, And it was visiting one such tomb that prompted the um, poet Philip Larkin to write um, his poem, An Arundel Tomb. And actually, it's a line from that poem as he as he looks, gazes down upon this medieval knight holding the hand of his wife, that he wrote this particular line that became the philosophy of the book, which was what remains of us is love. And so it's fascinating to find those commonalities. I think it's always much more interesting to talk about uh, surprising things we find in common between cultures around the world than pointing out the differences. Edward, uh, flipping forward a few pages in your splendid tome, uh, and the tomb lovers we've been discussing seem remarkably chaste compared to the R-rated images uncovered in Pompeii. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's some pretty eye-opening stuff there that you could almost lose an eye from. Um, yeah, but Pompeii is what we would today call the party town, quite clearly. Um, and up until 79 AD, when it was buried under these ash falls, late 1700s, early 1800s, the Spanish start excavating um, and discover this massive array of what we would call uh, quite sort of pornographic art, statues of Pan um, copulating with a goat and... Um, Set ears with uh, in a very excited state and so on, 
Um, <laughs> and then the, the French uh, start excavating with a frenzy the whole entire area in 1806. But what I love is this is occurring in a in an era famous for its very sort of its its primness and its propriety, <laughs> which is in direct contrast to what they're uncovering. Uh, to the point where when the son of the Spanish king, um, Francis II, visits in 1819 with his young family, he visits the um, National Museum where all of this artwork is gathered. He's so horrified that he orders everything to be locked away in the Gabano Secreto. Um, and it's, it was eventually bricked up and only opened to the public in 2000. But of course, the Romans were famously raunchy, and uh, in my collection of broken rubble, I've got quite a lot of statues with these enormous phalluses that almost require a wheelbarrow. <laughs> yes, yeah. There's a lot of, of of that kind of imagery in the book, each in a different way. The Romans, obviously, that's their early form of. Well, we find we find uh, phallus uh, uh, graffiti drawn on Hadrian's Wall here. Uh, it's everywhere. But of course, it's a very important symbol of fertility. But another interesting thing about what might have compelled the Romans into this um, wild sort of orgiastic activity is, is the, the existence of this um, plant that they used as a contraceptive called silphium. And we don't actually know what that plant was because they essentially consumed it to extinction. It, it guaranteed um, contraception and um, was even used to sort of end pregnancies in the early stages. Uh, and so the sort of freedom that that offered probably heavily contributed to the stories that we know about them today. Do we know what aphrodisiacs they used? Uh, I No, that's a good question. There, there are sort of various vegetables that were attributed to those qualities. I know that um, probably the same as the ancient Egyptians, onions were viewed as being um, very sort of aphrodisiacal and and. Uh, and uh, sort of holy men in ancient Egypt were forget, forbidden from eating onions um, because of the, the, the horniness <laughs> that they might lend them. But at the same time, we we know that pharaohs were buried with onions pressed into their chests and into their eyes because because of the concentric circle design. It was very, very um, otherworldly. Um, so an ancient Egyptian tomb at the time probably stank of onions. Well... While we stay in Egypt, tell me the story of the uh, Sacred Band of Thebes. Yeah, well, the Sacred Band of Thebes is, um, yes, we're now sort of where we sort of ancient. It was the first Greek professional standing army. Um, and we're, and again, we're talking around about the same time as the Etruscans, so 350 BC or thereabouts. Uh, and what was so ex extraordinary about this elite unit of 254 men is that it was composed entirely of same-sex male couples, the idea being that men would fight the fiercest to protect the person they loved who was fighting beside them. Um, and there are stories of them being distributed across larger forces to um, sort of front um, the in in invading charges. Um, and they were undefeated up until they encountered Philip II of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, whose army used long spears and that was what eventually brought their downfall. But um, Philip's army buried them together in a mass grave, which was marked by an enormous stone lion. And in 1818, a British architect called George Taylor was wandering around Greece, and he tripped over a piece of marble in the field, uncovers this lion, and there they finally find physical evidence that this sacred band existed. It was a remarkable story. This is uh, Late Night Love on RN, and we're... Uh talking to our old friend, one of my all-time favourite guests in Edward Brooke 
Hitching about his uh, newy love, a curious history in 50 objects. One of the most intimate parts of your book is the section on love tokens, which uh, prove that some of the smallest objects can be, well, the most powerful. Yeah, I think it's interesting seeing uh, how this idea of of wanting to give uh, a a piece to of yourself of your memory to your partner uh, we find everywhere across every culture and um, the ancient chinese would give combs and um, give peppercorns which sort of represented the sort of fertility of a marriage wishing you many children um, but they're also useful so they would give jewelry boxes that were broken in half and given to each partner and years down the line, descendants of these families are able to reunite because they reunite these broken pieces of objects. In Wales, you have carved um, wedding spoons. There's a, a couple of examples, incredibly extravagant carving in the books. Um, and then my all-time favourite is the Georgian trend for painting your lover's eye in a miniature that you would wear on a brooch or perhaps you'd wear it secretly in your pocket or around, on a chain around your neck. And the idea being that the essence of the person you love is entirely captured in their eye. Um, and that was all based on the story of uh, the Prince who Prince of Wales who became George IV, who fell madly in love with an older woman who was twice widowed. And it was sending her a, a miniature of his eye that eventually wooed her and won her over. I'm going to jump ahead a bit because uh, you also tell a fascinating story about a love token involving not the eye but a woman's breasts. Yes, it's always tricky to know what what we can talk about on the radio. But, um, yeah, this is the story of Sarah Goodridge, who was an incredibly accomplished uh, miniature painter. And we're talking Massachusetts, America, uh, mid-19th century. Um, and she fell in love very early on with an American politician called Daniel Webster, who would become a senator. And she painted his portrait several times. He was married, and there's no evidence of any um, sort of impropriety, but there were clearly feelings between them. Forty letters sent by uh, Webster to her exist, none from her side. And it's, it, it's, they're very careful with their phrasing, but the, the way that they greet and sign off to each other becomes more and more intimate. And he he married twice. Both his wives passed away. And when that happens each time, she she only left her town once in Massachusetts, uh, twice rather in Massachusetts. And both times were to visit him to console him after the passing of his wife. And in his um, collection of um, materials after he passed away, um, his descendants found this tiny, only a few centimeters, this tiny miniature of um, a woman's torso. You can only really see above the waist and below the neck. And it's unveiled are her bare breasts. And what's so interesting about it is that, well, A, nudity painted at this time is extremely rare in America. But also, um, if you notice, there's just a tiny giveaway detail of a mole just above um, her right breast, which is uh, an indicator that only a lover would know, would only recognize. So it was, I guess it's the earliest sext that was ever sent. Um, But it's just a tiny object that like so many in the book, carry a massive amount of story with it. Well, that could be described as a uh, cryptic code. Let us talk about the cryptic codes of love. Uh, How did people secretly communicate feelings before everything became possible via email? Yeah, there's there's all kinds of really strange ways. Um, There's something called the courting stick that was used in 18th century America, this massive long 
what looks like a drain pipe, really, that people would whisper sweet nothings to. It's not the most inconspicuous way of, of uh, communicating, but you wouldn't have to raise your voice, and it would it would only be heard by the person on the other end. Um, before we have telephones, it's quite useful. So you um, could murmur sweet nothings while keeping a respectable distance. Exactly, but it, I would have thought it probably had quite a sinister Darth Vader-like sound effect to it, so I'm not quite sure how romantic it would have been, but I guess you couldn't be picky at that time. Edward, um, do any of, and, these, any of these survive? Yes, I think there are a couple. I think the um, Library of Congress has one, and they, they have, there's a photograph in the book, a black and white photo of a couple using it. It looks very uncomfortable. But um, mainly the, the chapter in that book is taken up with these magnificent postcards, this trend for Victorian lovers to communicate in code. Um, and they're quite simple codes, but when you sort of read the translations, which I put a couple in the book, uh, which obviously I can't really repeat on the air, but... Um, they're, they're very beautiful images. They're very simple. But if you're trying to communicate past the, uh, the sort of prying eyes of parents on either end, then writing in code or even using Morse code, as Thomas Edison did with his wife. Ollie, yes, um, tell, us, tell us the story of Edison. I love this. And how he nicknamed yeah. his children Dot and Dash. <laughs> yeah, so he'd been, he'd been fluent in Morse code since the age of about 15 because he worked as a telegraph operator. And he taught it to his second wife, um, Mina, um, and so there are stories of when they're at the opera, for example, there are stories of them communicating with each other just through um, sort of tapping on each other's legs. Um, but he found it so, so useful. Yes, he nicknamed his two children, Dot and Dash. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and so you didn't even need um, particularly good hearing to be able to communicate so well. So it's lovely. Tell me about the fan club. Yes, as a way of communicating, you learn that you, if you hold, if you brush your fan against your cheek, there is, for example, that means, um, that can mean, uh, you know, it's a declaration of feelings, there's hiding the eyes, and every little gesture, which must have been very confusing, because presumably people are doing these gestures all the time, completely innocently as well. Um, but that's sort of akin to how people would use um, the placement of stamps on postcards as well. If they were crooked in a particular angle, it would mean things like, I send you a kiss. If it was reversed, it would, it would mean something, you know, do right back and things like this. So um, it brings all these objects alive. They have all these extra meanings. Well, the cards you mentioned with the, uh, with the glimpses into illicit affairs are extremely rare yeah. and highly sought after. But, of course, uh, there's uh, so many cryptic uh, lovers' postcards provided by the German hacker and IT expert, uh, Tobias yes. Schrodel. Yes, Schrodel, yes. He, he, he's an amazing guy. Um, he's highly sought after all over the world for his um, sort of good hacking, um, letting you know whether your websites are vulnerable. But his hobby is collecting his postcards, which I, I never really see come up for auction, perhaps because he's already, he's already pounced on them. But very generously, he allowed me to publish a selection in the book. And I can't imagine... They'll be found in any other books. They're incredibly rare things. Introduce us to James Graham, please. The quack, oh, well, the quack of all quacks. Yes, yes. Uh, my favourite kind of historical character character is an imposter, a charlatan, someone who really sort of builds their own gangplank and goes out on it and makes some incredible claims. And so we're talking around 1780 in London, in Pall Mall, a very prestigious uh, area. He opens what he calls his Temple of Health. 
Um, and it's uh, there are two giant bouncers outside called Gog and Magog. And as people are ushered inside for a, not 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 a very modest fee either, uh, anyone with an infirmity can come along with promises of it being cured. And in the uh, foyer, you pass a huge pile of walking sticks and ear trumpets, which you're told have been discarded by previous visitors who have been so instantly <laughs> cured they no longer need them. Uh, I've, so I've been to Lourdes and seen the same thing oh, outside the yes, grotto. Exactly, exactly like that. Um, so you're brought inside. You 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 uh, sat in an auditorium. You watch a show performed by quite scantily clad women, uh, and then a little uh, demon pops out of a trapdoor at the stage and sells you these nostrums, these miracle cures. But the most um, expensive option for the very desperate couple looking to conceive was the use of his celestial bed, this sort of giant mechanical bed. There's a picture of it in the book that looks unreal, that would spray perfumes. And it was rented out by the hour to couples to use to conceive. And supposedly, it was very mechanical. It had automata that would sort of play trumpets. The music and the movement of the bed would match the speed of the lovemaking uh, within it. Um, And conception was guaranteed. Um, and so, you know, for just for a few pounds, uh, the use of it could be yours. So uh, I understand Louis the uh, Louis the Fifteenth was uh, quite <laughs> taken with this technology. Yes, this is at a time when the world is going absolutely crazy for electricity. It's very much in vogue. The French have lightning strike fashion, where men are wearing hats with lightning rods made out of them with. Um, grounding wires trailing to the ground. Women have bonnets made out of it. Um, Louis XV is getting on on this idea of electrical parties. Uh, Benjamin Franklin had uh, boasted of parties where he would electrocute a turkey to cook it. Um, Louis XV went a bit further and he lined up a row of 200 <laughs> monks and zapped their bare feet on this wire that caused them all to jump up in one go. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. That was the height of entertainment in those days. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, uh, James Graham was literally just jumping on that bandwagon. It sounds like an amazing time to be alive. I, I think you're probably too young to remember the film Bedazzled, in which uh, once again Barry Humphreys played the role of uh, Envy, and they had the Leaping oh. Nuns. Now, they <laughs> leapt up and down on a trampoline, but they would have been much better <laughs> if they were electrified like the, like the French monks. <laughs> Probably would have cleared a few few more feet if they, yeah. Did he come to a sticky end, this uh, fraudulent Mr. Grant? After claiming that he knew the secrets to eternal life, like all good imposters, um, he unfortunately died rather unexpectedly at, I think, the age of something like 49 <laughs> and was buried in Edinburgh penniless um, because he just, as, as always, fraudsters, he fell into debt and uh, it, it wasn't really worth it in the end. I'm riffling through the pages. There's wonderful things in every other paragraph, but a finger has lit upon Tinder for orangutans. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I was interested if you took the idea of, you know, ours is the age of internet dating, so how far back can you find um, para-analogues with that idea? Um, but before then, yes, it turns out in 20, since 2017, there's been a primate park in the Netherlands who match their orangutans by allowing, allowing the females to browse a digital catalogue of, of males on an iPad. And apparently the trick is you have to create a, a strong steel frame for this iPad to withstand all the enthusiastic tapping of the, the females. And But even there, it's suffered damage. Apparently there was um, 
there's a female known as uh, I think Demolition Woman who uh, who apparently uh, was in uh, got a little carried away. But apparently, it's a very successful program. I introduced you by talking about my love of collecting interesting guests, and uh, two of the best were Carl Sagan and his uh, beloved Anne Dryan. Tell the story yeah. of uh, the Golden Record. Yeah, so this is I, I wanted to sort of end on a on a pleasant, optimistic note, and um, you always find those stories in science and astronomy because you know those are always filled with. The best of us, and uh, when the Voyager spacecraft program uh, was eventually launched in 1977, it carried with it uh, a gold LP, as I'm sure a lot of people know, on the side of it, that was apportioned just $25,000 out of the $865 million budget of the program. But the challenge was, if we're presenting a record that represents Earth, represents the sounds of Earth. What sounds do we put on it? What music? So the committee to decide this was chaired by Carl Sagan, and he worked with the NASA scientist Anne Dryan. And together they would sort of pitch ideas. And so you find when it's played at 16 RPM, uh, you find the sounds of children laughing, you sound, the sounds of planes taking off, of rockets, of rushing of water. And there's also this strange crackling, popping sound that you wouldn't know on the face of it, what it is. But it turns out there's an amazing story to it, which is as they're working on this project, what neither of them knew is that they were falling in love. And one day, Anne Dryan calls him up from her hotel room to say, very excitedly, she's found the perfect piece of ancient Chinese music to put on this disc from 2,500 years ago, this piece of flute music. And they have an hour-long conversation. And at the end of it, they're engaged. They've never had a personal conversation. They've never <laughs> been on a date or kiss. But they realize that they were just completely in love with each other. Um, and then he calls back and says, I just want to check. Oh, oh, did that really happen? And she says, yep, we're getting married. He goes, okay. Uh, and then just a few weeks after the launch, they tell everyone and they get married. But the best part of this story is what that popping sound is. So two days after they have this com- this life-changing conversation, she goes to a Chicago hospital to have an electroencephalogram, a brain scan, because her idea is she wants to put her brain waves on this record. So she converts it to sound. And so she, what you're hearing with this brainwave is the sound of a human in love. And so their love story is currently, it's left the solar system on Voyager 2, I think, Voyager 1, and is, is venturing out into the vast ocean of interstellar space and, by all accounts, will outlast the human race. So it neatly summarizes this idea of the book that what will remain of us is love. As I said to you off air before we began our chat, Edward, you've done it again. And thanks for that. (laughs) I've been talking to Edward Brooke Hitching about his uh, remarkable book, Love, A Curious History in 50 Objects, and it's published by Simon & Schuster. And fear not, beloved listeners, Edward is very fecund, and I'm sure he'll be back on the program in the not-too-distance. Thanks very much, Edward. Thank you very much for having me. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.